0: Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Hear now God's Word. Bondservants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart, as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service, as to the Lord. And not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you, masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said, Amen. Starting in Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul has begun to make special application or specific application of the doctrine of Christ, which he laid down in the first four chapters of this epistle. He calls on all of us to be imitators of God and for us to walk or live in love. He draws a stark contrast, as stark as dark and light, between the unbeliever and the believer. He exhorts us all to be filled with or under the control of the Holy Spirit. And he instructs us to submit to one another in the fear of God. With that backdrop, he then makes further application, very specific application, to wives and husbands and to children and fathers. Last time we looked at his application of these principles and truths to slaves or To employees or students or those who find themselves under the oversight of others. And today we will complete the ballot application that is now made to masters or to bosses or supervisors. The gospel of Christ is the only solution to our relationship problems in the world. There must be some overarching authority that governs all of us, some genuine accountability that uh, transcends our individual desires and perspectives. As fundamentally selfish beings, bitterness drives many of our relationships. We chafe at those who might have some authority over us, who deny us the things that we want, our immediate gratification The things that I think I want. The things that I desire. And so now Paul turns to masters and says, in effect, everything that I said to slaves, I also equally apply to you as well. When it comes to persons, regardless of position, he levels the playing field. There is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian. Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all in all. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so we are all directed to one Savior, the same God, the same salvation. And so he says in verse 9, and you, masters, do the same things to them. Live with fear and trembling. That's one of the things he said. For those who are servants, live with live in fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ. Have goodwill, doing service as to the Lord, and so all these same principles apply to, to both servants and masters. He does make some distinctions that focus on the particular temptations of, of our various positions. So, for example, he says to. The servants that they are to perform their duties not just with eye service or men pleasers. And then he says to those who are in positions of authority not to uh, threaten or, I think we might say, intimidate. There are a lot of ways to threaten. Um, In other words, masters should be kind, they should be just and respectful, and never use their power or position to treat people poorly. In the ancient world, slaves were simply property to be used or abused at will. And it, uh, I need to point out that they were abused regularly and in every way imaginable. The Christian gospel brought in a radical social change. In fact, that's what the gospel does across the board. The families and, and every social institution, everywhere, every place there are human relationships... The gospel brought powerful change. And I think we're so used to it and have so many of the benefits of it that we take that for granted. It raised up women. It raised up slaves. Ultimately, I believe it was the gospel that led to the abolition of slavery. The ancient In the ancient world, again, slaves were simply property to be used and abused. The Christian gospel uh, brought change to even those in the very lowest positions. You no longer get to treat your slaves or your employees as lesser persons or as simply an objective piece of property. In Christ, you stand in a new relationship to them and have new obligations toward them. A great example of this is found in the epistle to Philemon. Paul writes to Philemon, who was a slave owner, therefore I thought I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting. Yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul, the aged and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my for my son, Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable. Onesimus was a slave to Philemon. And now here he is with Paul. He's been converted. He's become a believer. And now Paul is writing because we're going to see that he's going to be sending him back. He says he once was unprofitable to you. He wasn't a very good slave. He wasn't a very good servant. But now he is profitable to you and to me. I'm sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is, my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel, but without your consent I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him Forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So he says the relationship has radically changed now. This is now your brother in Christ. Every Christian, then, regardless of our position, should be motivated by our accountability to the Lord. We are his. Slaves, and we shall give an account to him. Heaven and hell are real, and the Bible doesn't shy away from keeping both of those before us. For example, 2 Corinthians 5, 9-10, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And so, our text today, Paul says this, knowing that our own master also is in heaven. That's how we operate. Regardless of our position, we operate with an awareness that we have someone we're accountable to. Basically, the apostle is saying, I know that you already know this, but I'm going to remind you of what you already know, and if you know it, then you should be governed by it. You're accountable to someone else. Now, everything that happens in the world is temporary and transient, changing. 2 Corinthians 4.18, We do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The text tells us that if you're a master, you're only a master according to the flesh. So no matter what position you have in this world you are going to soon relinquish that position. At the grave, you must empty your pockets and resign all of your positions. And that should always be before your eyes. Masters would do well to remember what Jesus said in Luke 16. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, this slave, send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in the flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and you are tormented. Everyone, from slave to master, must look beyond today, beyond the moment, beyond the circumstances, beyond this temporary situation, and live in light of eternity. Again, Luke twelve, four and five, Jesus said, and I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after have no more that they can do, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. And so, as you've heard me quote many times, C.S. Lewis said, This world is only shadows. The real world is yet to come. Men will speak contemptuously about pie in the sky by and by, but I tell you, there will be a rude awakening. The master in heaven is the real master. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And everything that you think is substantial and real, everything that you think is substantial and real, is dissolving as you sit here right now. Your money, your house, your car, and you... And your position? Remember those lines from the hymn, Abide With Me? Change and decay in all around I see. Paul reminds us that our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Slaves are citizens of heaven, masters are citizens of heaven, and all the permanent stuff lies ahead of us. And so, masters, bosses, this is what you'd better keep at the forefront of your mind. There is someone over you, and he changes not. He is your master. And with this true perspective, suddenly the positions that we occupy in this world, that we occupy in the flesh, take on a very different significance. Allow me to take a little rabbit trail for just a moment. It is not uncommon for a man of means, regardless of how he obtained those means, to assume, even if he never says so directly, that he is deserving and that he has earned his wealth and privilege and his power and that those who are without means are not quite as worthy as he is. He really does come to think of himself more highly than he ought after God had, been, had blessed His people, some of them said in their hearts, in Deuteronomy 8:15, "My power and my might and my hand have gained me this wealth." But Moses warned, "And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, and He may est- that He may establish His covenant with which He swore to your fathers, as it is this day." And God warns that in many cases, in Haggai 1.6, those who earn wages earn wages to put them into a bag with holes. A pocket that has holes in it. He can take it away just as fast as he gave it. Humble masters and bosses show that they know that they are in Christ. Now, the text tells us there's no partiality with God. God doesn't play favorites. Other translations say He is no respecter of persons. In other words, since your position is a gift, God's not impressed. And neither should you be. God is looking at totally different criteria. He is concerned with your relationship to Him. He is pleased with a faithful slave, and He's not pleased with an unfaithful master. And there is a reason why it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom. And Jesus warned, for everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. So if you're a boss over others, your first concern is to see your position not as one of privilege, but as one of responsibility. You've been given much, and now you're to use it to God's glory. It's not your position that will matter, but what you did with your position. Now, there are some ambiguities in the Bible regarding exactly how the final judgment is going to go down. I think it's like a lot of things in the Bible, even heaven and the new earth. There's a lot told to us, so we get a picture, but there's a lot not told to us, and I think that's for a reason as well. God has revealed certain things that should always be before us. The Apostle Paul did everything he said with fear and trembling. Because he, quote, knew the terror of the Lord. And that he would have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for the deeds done in the body. Everything you do and everything you fail to do is seen and known by the Lord. We should all do well to remember the children's catechism. Can you see God? And the answer is no, but he can always see me. On the other hand, for faithful Christian masters and bosses who are themselves servants, there is the hope and the promise of hearing these words. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And so there were two motives that motivated the Apostle Paul and all of his work. And these same things should motivate us now. 2 Corinthians 5.11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ compels us. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, Ephesians 6.8 from our text today, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Now,
1: I want to make some applications
0: today, and several of these come from Dr. Rob, Robert Rayburn. As I was reading and, and thinking through this, I ran across this, and he gives a couple of examples or applications of this that I think are very useful. This is not intended then to be exhaustive of how those in positions of authority can manifest this, but I want to give these as examples or from him. First, employers are obligated to return to their employees a just wage. Paul puts it this way in Colossians 4:1. Masters provide your slaves with what is right and fair. The Bible's ethics of wages rest on this principle: <clears throat> the labor is worthy of his hire. A point repeated several times in Scripture. Consider these following texts. I just want to read a few here to give an example. Uh, Deuteronomy 24, 14 through 15. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is in your land within your gates. Each day you shall give him his wages and not let the sun go down on it, for, if he, for he is poor and has set his heart on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord, and it be sin to you. James 5.4, Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. Jeremiah 22.13, Regarding Jehoiakim, Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by injustice, who uses his neighbor's service without wages and gives him nothing for his work. Malachi 3.5 And I will come near, near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows, and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien, because they do not fear me. Genesis thirty-one forty-one. Laban is an example of a crafty employer who uses all manner of strategies to pay as little as possible to his workers and keep them as much as possible for himself, he changed Jacob's wages ten times in an effort to defraud him of his due. This is but one illustration of the application of the fundamental biblical principle of working, uh, of working life. The Lord is watching while we work. The essential implication of that principle is that employers, as well as employees are obligated in their working life to practice the love of their neighbors. Love for God and man will always require employers and employees uh, require of employer and employee more regard for the well being of one of of the other person than for market forces or that market forces could ever require. The Lord is watching. Market forces, profit motive, the reality of the bottom line would never require an employer, boss, or supervisor to love his workers, to treat them with regard and respect, and to put their interest above his own personal interest. The fact that he must do his work before the living God, that is what brings these considerations and these obligations to bear. So that's one. Wages. Second. Employers are obligated to consider the general interest of their employees as human beings valued by God and created in, in His image. It is not the case; uh, it's not the case as too many employers have thought that if the wage is adequate, the company has done its duty to the employees. There is no relationship in life that can so easily and painlessly be managed to the satisfaction of God, and certainly not uh, the relationship of someone who has both so much power over other human beings and so much opportunity to do them good or ill. Consider these three texts. Isaiah 58.3 In condemning employers in his day, the prophet says this, You exploit your workers or drive them on, that is, you require them to work when they ought not to have to, Uh, in this case, a fast day, and in other cases, the Sabbath, or by simply requiring too many hours a day of labor. Job 31, 13-15. If, Job says, if I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up, when he makes inquiry?" What shall I answer him? Did he not make me in the womb also make him? And did not one fashion us, him and the employee, in the womb? Job thirty-one thirty-eight through 40 Here Job is inviting God's curse to fall upon him if he has, quote, broken the spirit of his tenant farmers. Today, we can think of any number of ways in which employers can mistreat employees. Cruel speech, poor, unsanitary, or unsafe working conditions, a failure to appreciate and commend faithful labor, little concern for job security, sexual harassment, and any number of other things. I want to close today. I'm going to read a little bit longer story here, but I thought it was a good illustration of what a Christian employer can do. R.C. Sproul, you may not know this, wrote a biography of Wayne Alderson, uh, a Pittsburgh businessman, and the name of the book is called Man of Steel, the Wayne Alderson story. And here's a summary of this story and how Christian bosses can have a great impact. In 1965, Wayne Alderson accepted a job in the financial department of Pitron Steel, a steel foundry in Glassport, Pennsylvania, and by 1969 he had worked himself up to the position of controller and chief financial officer. The controller, as controller, Wayne was responsible for the financial management of the company, and Pitron was in financial trouble. The massive foundry covering seven blocks along the Malangahela Mon- River was typical of the many steel mills of western Pennsylvania. The nerve-wracking noise- noises, noxious odors, and ever-present soot created an oppressive- oppressiveness that hung in the plant all day and night. Pitron was a filthy place to work, and it did not bring out the best in its people. In 1972, Pitron was on the verge of explosion. There was so much hostility between labor and management that tension was at a peak. On the surface, the issues appeared to be economic. The plant was in trouble financially in the union. Uh, the United Steelworkers had made concessions, but under the surface, workers were feeling animosity over the issues, qualitative issues concerning matters of dignity and personal respect. Despite the company's financial condition, the men went out on strike in October of 1972. The bitterness, charges, and countercharges resulted in what was called 84 days of hell. Just before the strike, Wayne Alderson had been promoted to the position of vice president of operations. Alderson had been critical of the company's policy of management by confrontation, and intimidation of the workers, arguing that it simply didn't work to improve productivity and quality. Against all industrial relations protocol, Alderson decided to meet secretly with USWA Local 1306 President Sam Piccolo, a tough and skilled representative of the plant's people. He wanted to present a plan called Operation Turnaround. The difficult meeting broke the ice that had held management and the union in its grasp for years and began a relationship between Alderson and uh, Piccolo that has continued to this day. Alderson felt that management had to make the first moves to convince the workforce of its sincerity, and so he began by walking into the plant to talk with the people. The first person he visited was a chipper who performed one of the hardest and dirtiest jobs in the plant. The chipper chips away defects from large steel castings with a heavy jackhammer. Alderson said, let me have a crack at it. And with that, he removed his suit coat and climbed into the casting. He lasted all of three minutes and conceded that whatever the company paid the man, he earned every cent of it. Within a few minutes, every worker in the plant heard about the incident. By his gesture, Alderson had dignified the least respected task in the plant. As he took more symbolic steps to demonstrate dignity and respect, Alderson began to break down the industrial traditions of the past. Knowing Alderson was a man of God, one day Sam Piccolo, at a lunchtime gathering, began jokingly needling him and he asked if Alderson was ready to start teaching us about the Bible. Over the next few days, the subject came up again, and Alderson began to think they were serious. And so informally, the two men began to discuss the Bible, accompanied by a few others from the plant. As time went on, more and more men joined the group. As it grew, they moved the discussion to an abandoned storage room located directly under the open hearth. The dismal room looked like a catacomb. So the men cleaned out the spider webs, brought in stray cats to control the rats, and set up benches. The men referred to the place as their chapel under the open hearth, and one man simply made a sign that said chapel. Others began to make their own contributions to the chapel. Wednesdays were set aside for the Bible study meetings. Initial skepticism gave way to belief as the group grew gradually into hundreds. Workers' families were noticing the changes also, as love, dignity, and respect were replacing hostility. The ensuing months brought a dramatic change in the plant and its people. Something powerful was bringing order to life in the plant. Wayne Alderson is not a softy He is a hard-nosed, practical manager focused on the performance of the organization. The difference is how he goes about getting results. By truly valuing people, which he interprets as demonstrating love, dignity, and respect, a foundation is laid for high performance. Over the next 21 months, Pitron's turnaround was as dramatic as any in the annals of American industry. Sales went up 400%. Financials went from a deficit of 6 million to a profit of 6 million. The workforce grew from 300 to 1,200. Productivity rose 64%. Labor grievances went from 12 per week to 1 per year. Chronic absenteeism, running 20%, dropped to less than 1%. Quality of product became the best in the history of the plant. A poor safety record went to an outstanding one, and workers became customer-oriented and ultimately its best salespeople. With profits running high, Pitron was sold by its parent company. Even though Pitron became the shining star in the new organization, its its management style was just too radical for the new company. Alderson was given the opportunity to remove himself from the Bible study group, but politely refused. His refusal to change his management style at Pitron resulted in his termination from the company. The work world in 1974 was not ready, even when the evidence was overwhelming for valuing people at work. So, people should love to work for Christians and do business with them. Unfortunately, that's not always the case, and this should be deeply embarrassing for all of us. That it should be the case ought to be the marching orders of every Christian company owner, boss, or supervisor. It must be the case if one is running his company in a way that pleases the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, help us to learn contentment in the positions that you have placed us in. And if we find ourselves in positions of authority over others, may we self-consciously represent our Lord Jesus Christ well. May we show his kindness and justice as we respect those for whom you have made us responsible. And help us to remember that we are always your servants and that we will give an account to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hebrews 4, 11-13 Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Regardless of who we are, regardless of where we are or what position in life we occupy, we are always in the presence of God. His word speaks to all of us and searches, searches us out. Sometimes people welcome God's word, even when it hurts. At other times, God's word divides and separates people, and they run. They avoid it. They seek a softer voice. But in the end, we will all stand before him. In fact, we stand before him today, right now. He is present with us. And so let us renew our covenant with him that he is our God and that we are his people. O Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Fill us with bold and courageous faith that we might trust you and move. Grant us to see that our earthly hope is in the gospel of Christ, that we might act now to build and advance your kingdom. Enable us to obey your call, that we might actively evangelize the nations. And so we pledge to preach the word, to be instant in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. Indeed, to teach men and nations all things whatsoever you have commanded. In this world, there are many, Lord, who oppose, but we are grateful to know that you overcome. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Father, the world is without excuse, but not without hope. The nations weary themselves in vain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Bless now our time of fellowship, our rest, our delighting in you and in one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Amen.